Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. We are going to be in John chapter 17 this morning. For those of you that like to follow along, um, this morning has been a good start to the month. Next week, believe it or not, is Palm Sunday. I'm having a little trouble coming to grips with that. I appreciate um, how quickly time goes, and I don't know, it, you just pick up speed, I guess. But uh, two weeks from now, we will come together to celebrate the incredible miracle that is the resurrection. And uh, so in between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, of course, we mourn the loss of a Savior. And so there's this sort of triumph, loss, greater triumph. And so over the next couple of weeks, we sort of worship in extremes, as it were. We celebrate King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the, the thousands of people that would cheer him on and would welcome him as Hosanna, the Messiah, the King. We see that same King hanging on a cross in the darkness, put there by many of the same people who cheered him. And then we celebrate the resurrection and the life and what a great thing that is. And, and in between all of these days of highs and low, there's a moment in time that's often overlooked and it's one of those things that we can just read through and not really stop to think about, and it's what I want to think about this morning. It's a moment in time where Jesus, mighty, triumphant king, sacrificial lamb, risen savior, Jesus gathers his closest friends together, and he says, let's share a meal together. And it's a traditional Passover meal, and so there's a lot, of, a lot that goes into that. Many courses, deep meaning, the forerunner to the simple bread in the cup that we just enjoyed. But in that time, the friends are gathered together away from the hustle and bustle and the, the chaos of Jerusalem and all of the things that are about to happen. And, and Jesus has some choice words for his friends and he instructs them one last time. And at the end of that evening, before he goes off to face the, uh, the coming soldiers and all that they will lead him to, he stops and he prays. And it's a prayer that John records for us and I think it's worth spending a little time on. John chapter 17 records the entire prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus and so I think it's worth paying attention to. And it comes at the end of this ceremony that we just recreated in brief. It comes at the end of what we've called the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the time when Jesus reminds his friends with the bread and the cup of his body broken and his blood shed. And before he goes out to Gethsemane, before he goes to face arrest and a mock trial that convicts him, sentences him to death, and ultimately his own execution, Jesus stops lifts his eyes to heaven and lifts his brothers and sisters, us, to his heavenly Father. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read part of that prayer. 
There's much here, many words that could be said, and, and just for the sake of time, we're only going to tackle a small part of it. But in John chapter 17, I'm going to read starting in verse 20 to the end. Here's what that says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God and the prayer of our Savior. Father, I pray that just now you would come and that your spirit would be here. Lord, as we unfold this word together, work on our hearts. I pray for the simple things of the strength of my voice for the next several minutes and the focus of the attention of my brothers and sisters who are here. But Lord, I pray for the harder things, that your spirit and your word would work in us to cause and accomplish your purpose for us. Mold us and shape us, Lord. Show us who you are. Reveal our Savior to us in new ways that we might follow him better and change us by your great word. Amen. So, we walk through this passage, and, and you need to understand, of course, we're starting in the middle of the prayer, and Jesus says something very interesting. In verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So if we were to back all the way up to the beginning of the prayer, which starts in verse 1 of this chapter, we'd see that Jesus has been praying for his friends, those that are gathered with him those in the room, and now he shifts and he says, not just for these, but for all who will hear through their word. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you know him as Lord and Savior, you are one who has heard and believed through their word. You are one that he's praying for. Your Savior, your King, and your Lamb who takes away your sin, before he went to the cross, stopped. And he prayed. And he said, Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they all, all, all may be one. Jesus prays that you and I, as believers in him, would be unified together. He, he calls out to his Father for our unity. And it's the last thing he does before he leads his friends off to the garden. 
Of course, trying to reduce the prayer of, a, of our great God and King to a few simple words is, in some sense, foolishness, but you can boil it down to some simple things, and, and, and unity is at the heart of it, but it's not the unity just of friendship. It's not even the unity of family, although we call each other brothers and sisters, and that's, that's appropriate, that's good. It's a different kind of unity. See what he says there. He says, just as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you. I mean, think about that. Think about Jesus and his Father, the first and second person of the Trinity, they're, somehow they're separate people, they're separate entities, but they're not. They're the same. They have the same heart, they have the same mind, they have the same essence, they have the same desire. And it, so I'm going to explain to you how this works. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know how the Trinity works. I don't know. But I know it's, it's this amazing thing that God is able to love because he's three and one, I wish I knew. What we know from Scripture is that this God and this Son have such an intimate relationship that seeing one is seeing another, right? And this is the kind of unity that Jesus prays for us to experience. Just as he is with God, one, so he wants us to be one. He wants us to be so closely intertwined with one another and with God that we are of one heart, one mind, one desire, one purpose, brought together because of whose we are. And so on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, does it seem surprising that he would stop and he would pray, as I go from this world, Father, would you make them unified and would you join in that unity, you, me, them, all knit together? Does it surprise you that this would be his prayer? It might just possibly be an opportunity for us to say, why? Why would God pray this? Why would Jesus pray this to his Father? Now, you got to be careful because asking why of God is always a dangerous question, right? There's nothing wrong with asking the question. We can ask, God, why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say? But you need to be careful because like Job, we may never get an answer to that question. And so we can ask as long as we're willing to accept an answer we don't like or maybe even no answer at all. And so here we can say, Jesus, why would you pray for unity for us? And thankfully, he does give us his answer. It's right there in the same verse. Verse 21, Jesus prays that they, us, the believers in Christ, will all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants the world to know he was sent from God. He stands here in the shadow of the cross. He knows that he will shortly be abandoned by those that are closest to him. And his prayer is that the world will believe that God sent him. 
but not just that the world will believe, but that it is our unity together and our like-mindedness and our love and affection for one another that will show the world that Jesus was sent from God. He doesn't pray that the hours of darkness that engulf the earth would open eyes. He doesn't pray that the, the temple veil rent in two like that. <laughs> he doesn't pray that the temple veil would be the miracle that causes them to see who he is. He doesn't pray that the, the, the gruesome death or, or the literally earth-shattering resurrection will be what opens their eyes. He prays that they would see us and marvel at what God has done in sending his son. To understand what Jesus is praying, I think it might just help to glance back briefly at the beginning of his prayer. Because as he introduces his prayer, as he starts off, he gives us a few words that are gonna shed a little bit of light on what this why is all about. Back up in verse one, Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Father, glorify your son. Now to, to human ears at first hearing, it might sound strange that Jesus would pray for his own glorification. It's a bold prayer. After all, this is, this is Jesus who's supposed to be the example of meekness and humility, right? And he says, Father, glorify me. How could he be so bold? And of course, the simple answer is, well, he is Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Okay. He deserves our glory. He deserves all that we can do to exalt him. But that's not all that he's praying. Jesus does not just pray for his own glorification as if it were just all about him. He prays because as the Father glorifies the Son, somehow that reflects back and the Son glorifies the Father. Somehow these two are so intimately connected together that one bringing glory to the other, just it's, it's a cycle, it's a circle, it doesn't stop. You cannot know one without knowing the other. And so when you see the glory of one, you see the glory of the other. And it's not just that Jesus wants God to be glorified and that he wants himself to be glorified. Look at verse three. He says, and I'm giving eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see, back in our text, Jesus is praying that people would see us and know God. And, and here Jesus is saying that part of what he's doing is he's giving eternal life to those God has given him. And here he says, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? It's, it's that you know the only God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. See, there's no eternal life apart from Christ. It's the only way. If there's no eternal life apart from Jesus Christ, then it makes all the sense in the world that God, Jesus would say, God, glorify me that in my glory people would see you and that in seeing you people would know you and that I can give them life. 
Why is it so important to Jesus that we be one with one another and with the Trinity in some mysterious way? We'll jump back to verse 22. Keep going in our text. Jesus repeats himself. The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given now to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays that God would unite us, brothers and sisters, so that even as he leaves this world behind, there is still this miraculous, incredible reflection of who God is and his glory for the world, and it's here. It's what we do as believers, as brothers and sisters, as a body, that the world may know that God sent Jesus to earth and that God loves us enough that through this Jesus, he would give eternal life. And our unity should display that glory to Christ. Hmm. Think about the implications of this prayer. Think about what does it mean for us to actually be unified. We should actually have a common purpose. We should have a deep and abiding affection for one another. What did the unity of God the Father and God the Son look like? It was, it was an open channel of communication. It was God the Father providing for the needs of Jesus the Son. It was caring for one another. We value one another. We work at building bonds to one, with one another. We should care for one another. But there's something else. There's something that we could miss in all of this. It's not just enough to say we're one people. It's not just enough to say that we act as one. Because if our oneness does not reflect the glory of God to the people outside, then we've utterly failed in accomplishing what Jesus has prayed for us to do. Our purpose is to love one another so deeply and so differently than the world can love that people will see us and marvel at the glory of God. That they'll see us and our love for one another and wonder at the mystery of Jesus who allows us to do this. Our Savior's prayer is not just unity, but it is unity that reflects the glory of God. How can our unity reflect the glory of God to an outside world? We know why Jesus prayed for this. Why? Great. How? <laughs> That's what we need to know. Because we're going to go from this place and we're going to say, okay, this was really exciting and encouraging and uplifting, but how does this look? What do I do with this? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. Read the rest of his prayer. Verse 24 and following. Father, Jesus prays, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, that's a lot. But look and see how in praying this prayer, Jesus reminds us, first of all, who he is and who we are. In giving God praise for all of these things, he reminds us how we're to accomplish this. Because he says, first of all, I'm praying this for you. Jesus longs for us to see him in all his heavenly glory. He says that. Why? Well, because. It's just a continuation of what we were already experiencing. See, we see Jesus our Savior and we marvel at what God has done. We will one day see Jesus our Savior in all his glory and we will worship him all the more. It doesn't end here. It will show us how amazing God's love is. While Jesus walked this earth, he showed God the Father. I mean, you remember Philip, right? Philip, wonderfully, just probably like I would have said, you know, Jesus, the miracles are cool. The water to wine thing, I got that, you know, and the Lazarus thing was just like blew my mind. Just, if you could show me the Father, I'd be good. I mean, can you imagine, really, a, a man walking among us today that could do the miracles that Jesus did. I'd be the Philip. I'd be the one that would go, you know, just one more little favor. If you could do this for me, I'd be good. And what does Jesus do? Compassionately, lovingly, but sternly. Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing more to show. Philip, we are so closely united together you only need to see one to understand the other. And so now Jesus prays, Father, don't let it stop here on this earth where they've seen my earthly glory, so to speak, but let it continue on in heaven that they may rejoice at who I have become because then they will truly understand how deep and abiding is God's love for his son. And that's a nice prayer to pray but here's what's so reassuring today for us. Jesus prayed this to God, his Father. You show me one prayer that Jesus offered up that God said, no, not that one. This is the Son of God asking his Father. Don't forget who his Father is. Don't forget that when Jesus says, Father, open their eyes, that our eyes are open. When, when Jesus says, Father, I'm glad that this friend of mine died, Lazarus, so that they could see your glory, so, Father, will you bring him forth? God does it without hesitation. Don't forget that this is the Father who answers the Son's prayer. And so when Jesus says, Father, I want these dear brothers and all of us, brothers and sisters, to be with us one day to see my full glory, it is done. It will happen. And we can look forward to this, and we can be excited and rejoice that we'll one day see our Savior in his glory. But if we're talking about how, what does that do for us today? It gives us something to look forward to, which is good. We need to keep looking forward. 
But what do we do in the meantime? Surely Jesus does not expect us to while our way our time just thinking, well, one day. No. It's not that simple. We are called to live out unity here, not then, not later, here, to reflect God's, God's glory to the world. And Jesus, as he prays for this, does not leave us alone in our desire to see his prayer answered. So how do we fulfill this? How do we actually bring about this God-glorifying, soul-saving unity in Christ? Well, we need to recognize it's not just up to us, right? Because God works in us. Jesus has asked God to accomplish this, and he will. But that does not mean we have no role to play in this. We can't cast aside our own responsibility and say, okay, great. Jesus prayed for it. It'll be done. I'm good. We have a role to fill. And I want to illustrate it. And I think what would be helpful is I actually want to go back to the story that Ted started with last week. If you were here, he, um, and I, sorry, Don, I don't know where she went, but it was a good story. <laughs> if you were here, you'll understand that. Um, Ted started his sermon last week with a story of H.G. Spafford. It's an it's a incredibly compelling story. It's a beautiful story. It's a tragic story. Horatio Spafford was the hymn writer. He gave us a beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He gave us a lot of other things, but, but what's amazing about that story is he wrote It Is Well With My Soul in response to a tragedy that almost none of us could ever endure. He lost four daughters. He lost one child early on, just, you know, in, in the late 1800s, it was common that children would die, and so they lost a young child. But they had four daughters. All of them died in a shipwreck. And mom, Anna Spafford, was with them on the same ship. She survived. And so she gets, gets to Europe, being picked up, rescued at sea from the shipwreck, and, and Horatio, father, is left back in the United States and learns from a telegram that his four daughters have all died. And so on the way across the ocean to, to be with his, daughter, or his, his wife, he writes the words to this hymn. And I can't imagine. When sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. In the midst of grief and loss, the Spirit of God enables him to look up and see the glory of God. But there's another chapter to Horatio and Anna Spafford's story. There's, a, there's sort of a second act to their life play, if, if you want to call it that. And it doesn't get talked about as much. Um, but I think it sheds a little bit of this light on, well, how is it exactly that this unity works? Eventually, Horatio and Anna would have a couple of more children, and eventually they would find their way back to the United States and they'd try to pick up life where they left off and they'd try to rebuild and it just didn't work. They just, I mean, I can't imagine getting over that grief. And so they took some friends who were very dear to them and, and a group of, small group of believers decided, we're just leaving. It, had, it, it was after the great Chicago fire. There was a lot of grief and loss in the area and, and there were a number of other people who were willing to just go. And so they decided, we're gonna go to Jerusalem going to live in Jerusalem. And we're, what we're going to do is we're going to try to live the way that God called his people to live. Now, 
The Spaffords weren't perfect people, and I'm not necessarily holding this up as the model of how we all ought to go about living, okay? There was some weirdness that went, there was some weirdness to the whole thing, but, but for our purposes, it's a great example of they wanted to take this prayer to say, what does it look like to live unified, one purpose, one heart, one mind, to care for one another as the first believers did? And so they picked up and they moved, and they basically lived a, a communal lifestyle of just providing for one another, of giving to one another as they had need. And pretty soon, they opened up the homes that they had, and they said, we're not going to just give to one another, we're going to give to others. We're not going to just take care of our own needs, we're going to take care of others' needs. And so at first, it became just sort of a place of shelter. Now, this is in the early 1900s. This is World War I. This is Jerusalem. If you know anything about world history, it wasn't a peaceful place. Come to think of it, I'm not sure it's ever been a peaceful place. But here was a home where people knew they could go and they could be safe and they could have their needs met and they could look at this example of people living their lives in a way that said, I'm not living for me, I'm living for them. And at the same time, they worshiped God and they proclaimed the gospel and they said, we do this because we have been called. This little band of believers lived a life that was marked by such unity and such love that people marveled at a safe place to go in a turbulent place like Jerusalem. How does that look? Well, it's not going to look like that. But it's also not going to look all that different. There's a problem, though. In many ways, the second act to the Spafford life ends more tragically than the first. At the end of the first act, we lose four daughters at, at sea. Today, the ministry that was started by the Spafford family and their friends still exists. Most people refer to it as the American colony because they knew it was started by Americans who came to Jerusalem, and that was sort of the name that was adopted early on. In fact, what's really amazing is it's still in the same place. It's, it's up against the old wall in the old Jerusalem city. And it's still a place where people can go to receive care, but it's grown, it's expanded. It's a, it's a full professional medical facility. You can go there and you can be treated medically for, for all kinds of things. They have a, a children's shelter. They have an adoption service. I mean, if you think about the life that you would live in Jerusalem, it's a life of chaos and tragedy and people die and children are left alone and wounded. And so this little colony has grown to be an outreach to the people of Jerusalem. It's one of the very few places in all of Jerusalem where a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim can walk in off the street and immediately be cared for, no matter what. What do you need? You need counseling. Your family's experienced tragedy. You have physical injury. You're hurt. You need food. You have a, you have a little one that needs to be taken care of, put up for adoption, or just be cared for temporarily. All of these things. It's an amazing place, and the world marvels. But the tragedy is this. The gospel is no longer there. The ministry that began in the home of Horatio and Anna Spafford has forgotten its first love. 
There are plenty of Christians who still work there. In fact, some of the people who run it you know, on the board are believers. And so I have no doubt that Jesus gets proclaimed in small ways. But if you read their mission statement, they describe themselves as a humanitarian outreach to people of all faiths. Christ is gone. My fear is that any of us could, could circle up and say, we've got to love like Christ wants us to love. And, and we're going to provide stocked pantries and physical care and care for the children, and we're going to do all these things. But in the process, we could, we could lose our first love. Jesus Christ, who brought us to this place, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a man to gain a healthy body, a stocked kitchen, a safe home, a complete intact family, and to lose his soul? We can read the words of John 17, this prayer that Jesus offers, and we can easily gravitate toward one side or the other. It's very easy for us to read this prayer and we can, we can read it as a plea for God to protect us by keeping us close to him and saying we must draw close to God and God preserve our faith. And it is a prayer for that. We can read it as a prayer of unity and say, God, draw us closer to one another. Bring us tightly together. Knit us together as a family, as a body. And it is a prayer for that. But if we fail to see both sides of that coin, Jesus prays for both. If we fail to see both sides, we fail to fulfill God's calling for us. So how do we do this? How do we actually live out this unity that Jesus prays for? It's not enough to say we're gonna give ourselves a name and a place. It's not enough to say that we're gonna look after each other. First, in answer to Jesus' prayer, we must cling to God. First, we must know this intimacy with God that Jesus prays for. Jesus prayed, Father, that they also may be in us. Jesus wanted our relationship with our Heavenly Father to be as intimate as His was. And that's not the kind of thing that happens by chance. It's not the kind of thing that you show up on a Sunday morning and you get refueled for a week, and you go, okay, I'm good. That's not intimacy. It's the kind of thing that takes work. It's the kind of thing that takes time. The kind of thing that takes sacrifice. And so, it's good to look at Jesus. It's good to look at his life and to see what he did, but, but look at how he fostered the relationship he had with his father. He got up early while everybody else was sleeping to go pray. That doesn't mean you have to be the first one up in your house. It means you need to take time to go to your father to pray. He went off in the wilderness for 40 days without food so that he could do nothing but commune with God, his father. It doesn't mean you gotta go out in the desert for 40 days, but it does mean You've got to commune with God the Father and you've got to do it in ways that are dramatic and hard. 
This doesn't happen without work. Jesus was God's son, but he studied, he prayed, he worked, he strove to serve the God who sent him. We are saved by faith, and that's not of ourselves, it's a gift. Praise God. Don't take that gift for granted. You've got to exercise it. You've got to grow it. You've got to use it. The first thing we need to do in answer to this and, and in humbling ourselves to the prayer that Jesus prays is we must cling to one another. I'm sorry, we must cling to God and share an intimacy with God. The second thing we must do is we must cling to one another. We must foster an intimacy with one another that doesn't look like the world's sort of social clubs. Nothing wrong with wearing sports jerseys. Nothing wrong with going to 7 a.m. civic groups. There's nothing wrong with taking up a collection for the community pot, whatever it is, you know. Nothing wrong with those things. But if we look like them, what good are we? Jesus' prayers for all believers, not just the ones sitting here, which means, first of all, we have to build relationships far and wide. We need to look to those that have gone before us and consider those that are coming after us. However, God provides that opportunity. But most importantly, if we want to put God's love on display for the world around us, we're called to love one another here and now. The kind of love that we're to share is the kind of intimate, compassionate, God-fearing love that we don't do on Sunday mornings. This is part of it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we need to be here. We need to sing and worship our God together. We need to partake in the bread and the cup. We need to come together in prayer and under the word and all of these things. But if, we, if we're together for a couple hours a week, three weeks a month, it's not gonna do it. We have to open ourselves up to one another. We gotta actually live life together. We gotta get in each other's business. That doesn't mean you stick your nose in what your brother's doing. It means you open your life up to what your brother is doing. We confess to one another. We forgive one another. We encourage each other and sometimes we call each other out and hold each other accountable to where we're headed. You know, a good place to start would actually be go back and read 1 Corinthians. We've spent several weeks going through 1 Corinthians, and Pastor Dave's done a great job. Tells us how to love one another in the midst of our worship and in the midst of life as, as a local body. Go back and read it. Ask God to open your eyes to ways that you can be intimate with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of God. There's a lot that could be said about this. But the reality is, I can't tell you what the Spirit can tell you. I can open up the Word of God and we can walk through it together, but ultimately the Spirit of God is gonna convict your heart in ways that are unique to you. But as your brother in Christ, I want to come alongside you and I want to walk through that with you. So if I can help you respond to what the Spirit is calling you to do, tell me how I can help you. There may be ways that you can help me. 
And there may be ways that we can help each other. And this intimacy with one another is what's going to show the world the glory of God. But I want to take a couple minutes and I want to just pray that God would use these words and the conviction of his Holy Spirit to move us closer to one another and to him. Take a minute and just pray where you're at. And I'm going to close this out in a couple minutes. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you have not left us alone here. Lord, your word is amazing, and it certainly cuts to the heart. But God, I'm so grateful for the encourager, the third person of the Trinity who is still here with us now and lives in us and moves us. And Father, I do pray that the word that we have heard this morning would do a work in us and that your spirit would flame that into a fire. Lord, would you show us how it is that we can step a little bit closer to you, strengthen that relationship, make us one with you as Jesus prayed for us oh so long ago. And Lord, would you show us too how we can take another step closer to one another. Father, would you bind us together, one heart, one mind, one purpose, one gospel, that flames the love that we share for one another so that the world will look at us and marvel, not at who we are, but at who you are, that you could take a people like us and do such an amazing work. God, as we go through the next few weeks and we celebrate the victory of your King, the Messiah, come, and the amazing victory that's won through the mystery of his death, the sacrifice, the shed blood, that we've already celebrated. And as we look to Easter Sunday with eager hearts and joy, Father, would all of those things draw us closer to one another and to you so that Jesus' prayer would find fulfillment here in this body. Lord, do a work in us. Build your church for your glory, not ours. Through Christ, amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.